it seems to me that all of this is God trying to get through Jonah's thick head. You're getting angry. You're so upset that you don't have shade. I'm so upset that I don't have the people that I made in my image. It angers you that you have to endure a little sun. And it saddens you that you have no shade. And you can't offer one tear for a city full of men, women, and children made in my image. I used to read the book of Jonah and think that God sent Jonah to send a message to Nineveh. I wonder if God sent Jonah to send a message to Jonah. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We're going to look at the book of Jonah tonight. I know I've skipped Obadiah. I'll come back to it. Assyria was a really bad place. It may be the case that there simply wasn't a worse place on the map than Assyria at this time. In Amos 4 and verse 2, Amos hints at what's going on in the days of Jonah because he talks about fish hooks being stuck through your noses. The story, as I've understood it, is that when Assyria would conquer a kingdom, they'd take the king and they would put fish hooks through his nose and then tie the other end of that to the back end of a horse and drag him through the streets. Assyria. Pretty awful place. It feels good and right when God judges evil empires. That's why we cheer in Star Wars when the Jedis win. It feels out of place when good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Or at least that's how we say it. That's how we think it. And so I think we can understand the reluctance that Jonah must have felt to go preach there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to declare my word to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. I want you to talk to them about the great evil being done there. Now, we all know the next verse. Instead of going towards Nineveh, he hops a boat heading the opposite direction to Tarshish. And when I ask the question, why did Jonah run? We want to fill in the answer with what we assume. I looked at some former sermons that I've preached, and I filled in the answer with what I assumed. Who would want to preach to Nineveh after what I just described as the worst possible place to have to go and preach? Text doesn't say that. He doesn't answer it yet, but he will. So he hops a boat to go the other direction. Somebody has once described the four chapters of Jonah this way. Chapter one, Jonah runs away from God. You remember, he's trying to go the other direction, and there's a great storm. And the storm is so strong, it's rocking the boat, and these pagan sailors think, we must have offended some God somewhere, and Jonah says, well, I'll tell you what, 
I serve the God who made the land and the sea. Throw me overboard and it'll probably be okay. Go ahead and kill me. It's amazing to me that the pagan sailors repent and they say to to God, please don't let this blood be on our hands. They seem to be acting in a way that is, well, the way Israel should be acting. And Jonah, God's prophet, is running the wrong direction. And now he's saying, go ahead and take my life rather than me go and do the job God called me to do. Running away from God. And I've been told that chapter 2 is that Jonah runs to God. Because as he's going down, 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 he may think this is the end of his life. At least he doesn't have to go preach to Nineveh. And God says, I'm not done with you yet. The text says God prepared a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And there in the belly, in the heart of the big fish, in the heart of the sea, in the heart of the earth, Jonah has some time to think. The text doesn't actually say that Jonah repents. But it does say that he acknowledges that God hasn't abandoned him. And he promises to stay with God if, you know, God will get him out. And I've been told that chapter 3 is that Jonah runs with God. Jonah gets out, he begins to preach. I'm trying to imagine if I was walking along the seashore and I saw this, I imagine I would repent. The man jumps out of the fish's mouth, the fish throws him out on land and he begins to preach. And if you look carefully at the language, Jonah's sermon is 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Sometimes I joke and I say, he says, 40 days and you're going to fry. But he wouldn't have said that. He had just spent three days with fish and they did not like that word. 40 days, you're going to be overturned. That's the Hebrew word. You're going to be overturned. I can't help but notice that there is no mention of Nineveh's sin. There's no mention of how to turn and respond to God. In fact, there's no mention of God. It's almost like he's trying to sabotage the message himself. It's like he's getting to the conclusion he wants and leaves out the parts that would describe a very different God. You know, the word overturned has two meanings. The word, the Hebrew word used here for overturned is used in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah for destruction, overthrow. It's also used in 1 Samuel 10 in verse 6 for when God transforms someone. The text there says, God turns you into a new man. It's interesting that he says 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overturned. And a pagan king who doesn't even know God's name repents. 
and the city is overturned. It's transformed into a new city. In chapter 4, I've been told that Jonah runs ahead of God. You remember the first two verses. Pretty powerful stuff. It's satire. It's meant to be Jonah going overboard in making his case. But I want you to listen to Jonah 4, 1 and 2. When Jonah sees that God relented and did not condemn Nineveh, it made him very angry. Jonah to Jehovah. I knew it. I knew this is who you are. Exodus has already said this. You're a God slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You're, uh, this sounds good, right? He's, he thinks this is bad. What he's saying is, you're such a softy. I knew this is what you would do. This is the storyline. This is who you are. You relent and you give in and you love and you show compassion and you show mercy. What's wrong with you? Listen to the next part. This is why. I ran away. If you haven't already picked up on something about Jonah's character until now, I want you to see this. He doesn't say, I ran away from Nineveh because it was the most wicked place on earth and I was scared to death of them. He says, I ran away because you're the most compassionate God in the universe, and I was sickened by you. He prays that God will kill him on the spot. I'd rather be dead than live in a universe like this. God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah... Is your anger justified? You bet it is, paraphrase. Jonah runs outside the city and he sits on a hill to, you know, pout. And God does something very strange. He causes a gourd to grow up to give him some shade, and Jonah likes that. And then he sends a worm to eat the uh, shade-making gourd, and Jonah hates that. You might be tempted to think that Jonah is being picked on. God's having a little fun with him. That's that's not the story as as I see it. God comes to him again after all this, and he says the same thing. Jonah, is your anger justified? Seems to me that all of this is God trying to get through Jonah's thick head. You're getting angry. You're so upset that you don't have shade. I'm so upset that I don't have the people that I made in my image. It angers you that you have to endure a little sun. And it saddens you that you have no shade. And you can't offer one tear 
for a city full of men, women, and children made in my image who don't know which way is up. I used to read the book of Jonah and think that God sent Jonah to send a message to Nineveh. I wonder if God sent Jonah to send a message to Jonah. I wonder if God uses you and me in situations where we can't quite figure out why God put us there. We can't figure out what difference we're making or why that's the situation he called me into. And it may in fact be that in addition to all the things that God's doing through you that you don't realize, he's also talking to you. You know, Jonah failed to realize a couple of things. Jonah failed to realize that Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. That's a quote from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. You remember, a light is meant to take a dark room and illuminate. It's meant to give something good to a dark place. This whole idea that we were supposed to be cisterns rather than aqueducts. God blesses his people so his people can be blessed. That was never the story. God said, I am blessing you, Abraham, so that through your seed, bless the whole world. Supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Jonah failed to recognize that Israel was no more deserving of God's gracious compassion. The Nineveh. We know when Israel is leaving the wilderness to go into the promised land, they're excited. And God says, I, I'm excited too, but I just want to give you a little speech before we go over. That's, kind of, that's what I do. And he gives a speech and he says three times, when you enter the new land and you enjoy the food and you have nice houses and things are going great, please remember that it's not you, it's me. And I didn't choose you because you're pretty. I didn't choose you because you're smart. I didn't choose you because you're strong. I didn't choose you because you're numerous. I chose you because I love you. And all the blessings that you experience is because I give them to you. Jonah forgot that he is no more deserving of the compassion of God than Nineveh itself. He couldn't imagine or ever think of himself as if he was a Ninevite. You know, Jonah fails to recognize that God wants all nations and all people made in his image. And finally, Jonah fails to recognize that maybe God sent Jonah to preach a lesson to Jonah. And if I could summarize the book, I would say it this way. Are you okay with God loving your enemies? Are you okay with God loving his enemies? And if God chooses compassion and mercy over judgment, will we object? 
It's actually a very difficult question. Every time I think that I've had rough moments in my life, I pick up and read a book about somebody who's gone through, for example, the Holocaust. Or a survivor of the Rwandan massacre. Or a theologian I love to read who grew up in Croatia and talks about genocide. And I think to myself, what would it feel like if a tribe massacred every family member in my tribe? What would it feel like if everybody I knew were suffering the effects of germ warfare? And I heard that God wanted to absolve. How would I feel? It's really difficult because we don't stop to think of ourselves as fellow perpetrators. We see ourselves on the other side. There are obvious references in Jonah to the story of Jesus. Three days in the tomb, three days in the fish. There are other references that are interesting. Jonah's name means dove. If you go back to the Genesis story, the dove isn't sent out to destroy. The dove is sent out to find some life, an olive branch, and bring it back. But I'm amazed that the parallels I really see between that story and the New Testament has to do with the wideness in God's mercy. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the street, he doesn't say, behold, the Lamb of God who came to save Israel. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that while living in a time in which they felt the oppressive boot of Rome. Jesus came as the light of the world. He came to share God's favor. And what does he do? He says, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and yet he can't help himself but visit the Canaanite woman, the Samaritan woman, military officials in Herod's army and Rome's army, and heal their son. He always had Gentiles in mind. John 10 in verse 16 Listen to this language. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Why the emphasis on Gentiles? Guess what? Raise your hand if you have a Jewish background. Besides six. We are only welcome because we are latecomers to the party and we have been given the keys to the kingdom because of his mercy. We're Ninevites who didn't know what our right hand is from our left. Perpetrators, sinners, 
Not just lost, but adding to the confusion of the world. Babel members living in chaos. Paul says, without hope and without God in the world. Until Jesus comes along and says, I've got a message for whosoever. Whosoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life, including, including Nineveh. Yeah. Sometimes we fail to appreciate the enormity of God's love and the wideness in His mercy. We are all His creation. Everybody you meet, the most vile person you ever see on the internet, the kind of Mass-murdering dictators were made in the image of God, and believe it or not, if at all possible, if at all possible, what God wants more than anything is for them to sit at the same table with you and me and to sup the supper of the Lamb for eternity. That is really hard to wrap my mind around. It's easier if I remind myself that I'm more like them that I am like Christ, and I'm exactly like them if it wasn't for Christ. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, Don't you know, don't you know that some people will die for a good man? But God commends his love towards us. He's talking to the church. That while we were still sinners, a few verses later, enemies of the cross. Christ died for us. The comparison is in Luke 18, where you have the Pharisee who says to God, I am so glad that I'm not like other men. And then you have the tax collector, the outsider, who recognizes his sinfulness and calls upon the compassion of God. And he's the one who goes home justified. Listen to this quote from uh, Michael Williams' book, How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens. The ship of the whole human race has sunk, and we are all splashing around helplessly in a sea of sin and death. We have been hauled aboard a lifeboat with unseen hands. Let's get busy helping to haul aboard as many others as we can. You know, as we're filled with the Spirit of God, we too begin to imitate the wideness in God's mercy. Look in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Listen to the way we're called when we are among ourselves and when we're in the face of the king of Nineveh. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. You must forgive as the Lord has forgiven you.
Sometimes I want to be the doorman at the kingdom gates. And I want to let in the people that look and sound and smell like they should. Almost always that means that they look and sound and smell like me. Then I have to remind myself. All those who are like me are like sheep who have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. Praise God that the only doorman at the kingdom of heaven has said, I died for every one of you. And if you'll give me your life, I want you. Entrance is not cheap. It costs the blood of the Son of God. But I think our courage and motivation to share the story of Christ grows the greater we understand the depth of what God did for me. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.